You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have a very special guest, Vanessa Beely, here to talk to us about the history of the Syrian war. I've been kind of looking through your work for a while now since the Syrian crisis started. So can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in Syria? Yeah, I'll try and keep it concise. <laughs> no, 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 you can um, blubber. We don't care. <laughs> basically, I kind of grew up in a household that was involved in the Middle East. My father was one of the foremost Arabists of his time um, and was British ambassador to Egypt on two occasions, both fairly dramatic. First of all, the Suez Crisis, and then secondly, the Six-Day War. Uh-huh. And he was committed to the Palestinian cause uh, for the majority of his career. And even when he retired, he continued lecturing about um, Palestine and, and uh, the Zionist occupation. Um, so I kind of, I grew up in that environment. And when he died in 2001, I ended up with a lot of his confidential papers. I wasn't at that time a journalist or even an activist. I was just someone that was interested in, in world affairs, like so many people that get involved. And then basically I retraced my steps back to Egypt. And from there I went to Gaza, Palestine. In 2012, uh, which is where I met one of my dearest colleagues, Eva Bartlett, who I'm oh, sure I know Eva. Heard of. No. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't realize. I, just... uh, I actually met her at the Rafa border. Um, both of us trying to get into Gaza. <laughs> ah, and uh, that was in August uh, 2012, and then in November 2012, I entered Gaza by the tunnels. And two days after we entered, uh, Israel started its 2012 um, bombing campaign. So I had a pretty um, rapid introduction to war zones and uh, Zionist aggression. And from there, sort of meeting Eva, I then got involved with the Syria Solidarity Movement, which Eva founded. Which movement? Uh, the Syria, oh, Syria Solidarity Network, yes. Yeah. Um, movement, sorry, not network. And and it sort of went kind of sort of, you know, escalated from there. I started to realize that although at that time I was focused on Palestine, being in Gaza, I started to realize that things were not quite as they seemed. And that there was, as always, uh, the Western imperialist hands um, in events or behind the events in Syria. So from then on, um, I started to follow them more closely. I tried to get into Syria actually in 2015, but I didn't actually enter until July 2016. And I went in with a U.S. Peace Council organized um, delegation uh, that included mm-hmm. veterans for peace and um, other peace movements. It looks like uh, your Wikipedia is also getting that one that <laughs> <laughs> keeps self-editing. <laughs> My Wikipedia is hilarious. I've given up even. I, I know. <laughs> I've seen this happen to Craig Murray, Rania, yeah. and somebody else, right? Yeah, it, it's extraordinary. And and the thing is, if you if I, I have had really sort of sweet friends say, yeah, well, I can edit it, and they edit no, 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 you can't. Wikipedia, no, that, I know. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the, I, I need to look at the edit history. Um, and yeah, it's like this crazy bot. Oh my, it's Bob. Holy Oh, crap. Bob from Broccoli. No, he's yeah. a real person. Oh, how, he's how a real person. So no, no, no. Yeah, no, he's quite famous. He, but he has he, like 13 edits every single uh, day for your Wikipedia. Yeah, I know. He's, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I thought it was a bot. Okay, well, no, 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 it's a real. I think, no, Bob, Bob from Broccoli, and I've forgotten the other one now. Oh, Philip Cross. Philip Cross is raised a bot. Yeah, uh, no, he's real. Also, how does he have? That's not possible to edit that many Wikipedia. He does Craig um, Murray, I know, Max Blumenthal, Rania. I know. Okay, so for those who are not familiar, what they do is that they, it's kind of like, the, at first it seems innocuous. They start replacing the sources oh. and then um, eventually like they make the, eventually if you like wait for their algorithm, whatever, to go on long enough, it'll make you look like a crazy person, right? Oh no, honestly, if you just go to my Wikipedia, you'll come away thinking I'm a raving lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, so where do you want to begin with the Syrian civil war? Or I guess it's we shouldn't call it the civil, yeah, Syrian yeah. civil war. I was going to say, let's begin with not calling it a civil war. Yes, I understand. <laughs> that. I'm sorry. Well, okay, no, no, so no, the regime not. change operations in Syria. So I know there was a lot of regime change operations <laughs> around that time, so it's hard for people to keep mm -hmm. track. But what was different about Syria that made it unique? Well, I mean, of course, in Syria, it's been ongoing for 10 years, and it's actually been a very expensive, abject military failure, despite the investment, the, the considerable, the, the billion-dollar investments by the U.S. coalition. And by the U.S. coalition, of course, I mean the U.S., the U.K., France, and the rest of the EU, or the majority of the EU, Turkey, Israel, New Zealand, uh, Australia, a huge number of uh, nation states that have effectively at least had a hand in this regime change operation, which is probably unprecedented in, as I said, the investment, the size, um, the investment into the propaganda war information war against Syria is is just extraordinary. Can you talk um, a little bit about it? Because we've had some episodes like where we had Andrea Gliotti on to talk about the truth about the Rojava and we've had Max Blumenthal on to talk about some other aspects, but we've never really talked about the propaganda war. So how does it go? And well, I, of course, I've been called an Assadist on like, we all do? So anytime you're not like uh, honestly, supporting I would take it as a badge of honor these days, really. I mean, okay. the idiots that, that throw these labels around, really, they don't deserve the title diplomat or, or journalist. You know, they, they, they are just there to reduce the, the debates down to, to a kind of reductionist level where nobody actually moves forward. You know, nothing progresses. No information is progressed or developed or evolved as it should be in, in these kind of debates. And if the humanitarian ethos is at the core of debates, which of course it isn't, <laughs> then, you know, things would not be censored as they are, as for example, the accusations of crimes by the NATO funded white helmet organization, for example. But if we're going to talk about the propaganda war, maybe I should sort of do it chronologically because sure, the White House came in 
I wouldn't say late, but they came in in 2013. And in my opinion, propaganda started to build up before 2011. And we have to go back, of course, to 9-11 and post 9-11, the Iraq uh, shock and awe um, invasion and bombing. And at that point, of course, that war was based on <laughs> the, the dodgy dossier of the weapons of mass destruction. That actually um, had a scene from the Sean Connery. I'm not kidding. I, I, I've, done, I've done an article about this a few days, a, a few weeks ago. But yes, a scene from a Sean yeah. Connery movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've been following. You've been doing some really good tweets about the kind of the fake narratives that have effectively taken us to war. You know, and if if we go back to, I think it was Woodrow Wilson, the the, the president that got in on the basis that he wouldn't take America to war. Almost immediately after getting in, he he sent out what were called then Minutemen to basically, um, in in one minute, they were supposed to manufacture consent for war. <laughs> basically, you know, and and really, what we're seeing in Syria is is really no different. It's just a lot more sophisticated, because whereas Iraq and Libya fell rapidly. Um, Syria, of course, hasn't. It's dug its heels in. It's resisted. It has very powerful allies that have come to its aid. And it has thwarted, um, the, you know, the U.S. Uh, neocolonialist agenda effectively. And that's, of course, we'll talk about that as well, is why now we're seeing sort of the sadistic and savage economic terrorism that is being brought to bear upon the Syrian people. Um, you know, and of course, unilateral sanctions are illegal, but that is what is actually happening here in Syria. But if I go back to the weapons of mass destruction and the Chilcot report that exposed the emails then in 2003 and before between mm -hmm. Tony Blair and Bush, and of course, even then they were talking about the potential um, of <laughs> developing a different relationship with Syria. So effectively what they were saying was, well, let's try a different route. Let's see if we can kind of win him over. And if you actually look well, at, at... What did they want from him, I guess? From, was, well, it, fact, was it Assad yeah, or his dad? No, this was uh, Bashar al-Assad. Okay, okay, sorry. I, I, I just, um, kind of... No, 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 it's fine. He became president in... Sometime in 2000-something. Yeah. But... We'll put it up in the description box. Yeah. Um, so basically, they thought they could bring him on board. Let's not forget that Bashar al-Assad was educated in the UK. Yeah. Um, His wife was, too, right? Yeah. Well, she was born in the UK. Oh, okay. Um, and educated in the UK, yes. And, you know, he was trained to be an ophthalmologist. He was trained to be an I, I, I know that one. Um, yeah. And so for a period of time, they actually courted him. Mm -hmm. But of course, ultimately what happened was that he didn't agree to the U.S. proposed pipeline, which was to come in um, from Qatar through Syria, Turkey and into Europe. He ah. favored the Russian back pipeline, um, which, of course, was from Iran, Syria, and directly into Europe. Can we talk a little bit about the pipeline? Yeah. Because I'm not very familiar with it. So what would it, was the U.S. proposing? Was that coming through Qatar to where? Yeah. 
Qatar through Syria um, into Turkey and then into Europe. Okay. So and basically, then- America would have control. That's how they perceived it, because of course, Qatar is um, a puppet regime. Of, yeah. Of the US, okay. <laughs> um, Syria, they assumed, would be under their control because to work with them on this pipeline. And Turkey is a NATO member state, and they yeah. also perceived that, you know, so they would effectively have control. <laughs> over the pipeline and over, I presume, some of the revenue. Mm-hmm. The oil. Um, and, of course, then they would be able to send in their oil companies um, like Genie Oil, etc., and benefit from their, in inverted commas, partnership with Syria over the, over the oil supply. But then, um, basically, I think it was in 2009, Assad went with the Russian-backed Iranian pipeline, <laughs> which of so course was a was a massive slap in the face. Hold for, on, um, what is the route for the Ir- Ir- Iranian pipeline? The Iranian pipeline. So it would go from Iran to Iraq. Yeah, Iran, Iraq, Syria. And directly into Europe. Through the Mediterranean? Okay, yeah. that, that makes sense. Okay, so yeah. uh, okay, um, I see now the difference. Okay, thanks. Sorry, yeah. I just I, I've actually understand. got, what I can do is I'll send you a map which you can put into the notes. Okay, thank you. Um, because it's, it's a good thing to see visually also. Um, and then, of course, Assad had um, the Five Seas project, which was connected to the Belt and Road Initiative, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, which, of course, is based on the old Silk Road. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, again, was anathema to, to U.S. supremacy in the region. And, of course, not only U.S., but Israeli um, hegemony also. Of course, Saudis uh, and U.S. BFFs. Exactly. Um, And then, of course, the the final thing was they wanted Assad to expel all perceived Iranian influence from inside Syria. Okay. That Um, included Hezbollah, and that would also, they assumed, would include relinquishing the Palestinian cause. Okay. Totally impossible um, conditions to set for, for Syria that had long been the staunchest um, ally of Palestine um, in, in the region. Also, often when they mean Iranian influence, it could be just straight up racism, and they often mean just Shias too. Is what I mean, I yeah, noticed. I mean it is, you know, and and this is the thing. I mean, we we hear this all the time that Israel or the United States is bombing. Iranian militia preemptive self-defense. We hear this time and time again. We heard it from Trump. We heard it from Obama. We we hear it all the time from from Israel that when they bomb Syria, they're bombing Iranian militia or Iranian arms dumps, etc., which is insane. You know, usually just means she. I just translate it in my mind as Shias. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, even if it is Iranian. It's on Syrian territory. Exactly. It's not your land. The, the right under international law um, to have bilateral agreements with any country it chooses to have them with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, there's, and the same in, in Iraq. For example, Hashad al-Shabi or the PMU, the Popular Mobilization Units, do have assistance from Iran, but they're Iraqi. And not only are they Iraqi, they are not exclusively Shia. Mm-hmm. They have Christian and Sunni and Jews within their membership, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they are the, the armed group that has been the most successful at defending Iraq against ISIS. 
Yeah, I'm, I mean, Hezbollah's also been defending yeah. gay bars in Lebanon. Um, yeah. I'm not. I'm not kidding. I'm, they're Christians in Hezbollah too, and people don't understand yeah. that. No, and the Hezbollah. I mean, I visited uh, the Christian village of Al Kaf on the border with Lebanon and Syria in, I think it was 2017, after it had come under a sustained suicide bomber attack in one day. I think they had something like eight suicide bomber attacks in one day. And a number of civilians were injured and killed in the attacks. And it was Hezbollah that entered the villages and mingled with the civilians in order to protect them because they were effectively surrounded by extremists so-called refugees that had fled Syria, set up camp around the village. So a village of around, I think it was between three to 4,000 inhabitants, Christian inhabitants, was being defended by Hezbollah on the Syrian-Lebanese borders. Yeah, you know, this is something. And, and the same thing inside Syria, when Christian towns like, for example, Malula, I think it has around two or 3,000 inhabitants, was taken over by Nusra Front. It was Hezbollah that was instrumental in the liberation of the town six months after Nusra Front. Billions kidnapped, nuns destroyed, churches and artifacts, etc. For me, like that was the first red flag was the fact that you saw Christmas celebrations where it was (laughs) controlled by the government and you did not see like... I think yeah. it was around 2011 or 12, maybe my or 13. I can't remember the first red flag that I was like, this, something's really wrong was when I realized when, when I saw that these there was no Christmas in places not controlled by the, the government. Well, you know, not only were, were, was there no Christmas, of course, any religious minority was effectively being ethnically cleansed. I agree, yeah, but I it, not having Christmas it was like very visible yeah, in my eyes, yeah, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a huge symbolic example of what these armed groups represent, you know, which is sectarian extremism, uh, Salafism. Uh, there is nothing, you know, the, the point is, and, and this is something that, that is rarely touched upon, the argument for U.S. intervention is always on some kind of humanitarian pretext and the mm-hmm. idea of bringing democracy to <laughs> supposedly, in inverted commas, backward lands. <laughs> yes. Right. And actually, the version of democracy that the U.S. would impose upon Syria is a backward, dark age, medieval um, Muslim Brotherhood regime. That yes. would effectively throw the country back into the dark ages. Both oh, well, not even the dark ages, just something that it's never been. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because actually Syria has always been, um, you know, a, a secular country. I mean, in Wadi Nasara, which is known as the Christian Valley, is, um, I've forgotten the name of it now, is the... Um, it's the little church where actually Prophet Muhammad wrote that um, Muslims should um, welcome and protect and um, take care of the Christians on their land. You know, and this is this is the principle that Syria has effectively lived by throughout its history, mm-hmm. and yet the U.S. presumes that it can upturn this ten thousand year old civilization mm-hmm. and it its blueprint for chaos strategy, basically. You know, that's what it wants. The U.S. doesn't want progressive Middle Eastern nations because Mm -hmm. that's a threat to its own supremacy. What Mm -hmm. it wants are these nations plunged into sectarian chaos, partitioned 
into sectarian statelets that will be forever warring against each other. And that's exactly what it tried to do in Yemen prior to the resignation of President Hadi in 2015, which then, of course, led to the the Saudi-US coalition-backed aggression, which has been ongoing also. You know, again, in Yemen, the last thing they wanted is for the, the Yemenis to overthrow the the sort of neo-colonialist regime by proxy, which was the Saudi cuckoo in the nest that had been basically put in place by um, the US, the UK and the French in order to to sort of curtail any development um, in Yemen on behalf of Yemenis. You know, and and this is what people need to understand. The US is a destructive influence. It's not a partnership. It's not an influence that is going to enable countries to progress. It's, no. it's an influence that wants them to be retrogressive. It wants them to, to be incomplete. They, they, they want failed states because they can control failed states. Exactly. Like Libya. I've done a video about this where I explained mm. that whenever you are having capitalism, well, whenever you allow people to vote, they're going to vote not to be oppressed. And so you can't really have capitalism in democracy. And that's when the U.S. military comes in when people vote yeah. not to be oppressed. <laughs> actually pro the will of the people because people if you give them the choice they'll always say i don't want to be oppressed by you guys no it's it's total nonsense you know the the u.s represents authoritarianism it represents intimidation bullying um oppression bloodshed you know there is not one country that the u.s has, has intervened in that is not now destroyed and in ruins and that's why it's important that we say, no longer say, it's a civil war in Syria. You know, the so-called peaceful protests, the early slogans were Alawites to the grave, Christians oh, to Beirut. Oh, my God, yes, uh, you're right. <laughs> it was in March of 2013 where CNN tried to, I don't know what they were doing, but yes, they first like showed some, like there were some actual protests. And But the funny thing is, I believe Assad met with those protesters who were upset about housing prices or something, like within two weeks. But then yep. they went from there to like, yeah, the, the cycle. <laughs> and I, I just shocked me that they mm. didn't notice it. <laughs> and it's also, you know, the, the other myth. And here I would direct people to Syriana analysis on YouTube and the work of Kivoka Masyan, who's a Syrian journalist who's been doing, you know, incredible debunking of the propaganda since the beginning of the conflict against Syria in 2011. And actually, in the early days of, of the protests, the majority of the deaths and injuries were actually among the security forces because for the first six months, they were forbidden for actually carrying arms to the protests. So, you know, th- this idea of brutal crackdowns um, on protests, and I've actually made a documentary with a Syrian documentary maker, Rafik Lato showing the evolution of the fabrication of narratives from 2011 through to 2013, which is when the White Helmets came in. Uh, so can and, you talk a little bit about the documentary and what the narrative is? Yeah, was? sure. Um, the name is The Veto. Um, it's available on my YouTube channel, but if you just Google The Veto. I will put a link there. Um, I love your YouTube Yeah, channel. sure. Sorry, yeah. Basically, so um, we started, for example, with an organization called Avaz. And again, here I would recommend people uh, the work of Corey Morningstar. Oh, um, yeah. Um, Ron kind yeah, of green, right? Yeah. I mean, she just did the most amazing dynamite 
information expose of what went on in the NGO complex to manufacture consent for the regime change war against Syria. And part of that campaign was run by an organization called Abaz that everyone will know because they are, you know, the world's major online petition campaign organization. But effectively, of course, what they do do is um, influence opinion (laughs) massively. And very early on in the conflict, they had a campaign called Smuggle Hope to Syria. They raised, yeah, they raised two and a half million dollars to bring cameras and um, photographic equipment into embedded citizen journalists inside Syria that were going to run the narratives that would maintain the criminalization of the Syrian government. Now, the problem is Avaz also, and this is really interesting, Avaz set up, Mm -hmm. um, how do I explain this? They set up a platform called Bambuser. And Bambuza was basically the feed for all the footage of these citizen journalists. So they would, would feed their footage into the Bambuza platform, CNN, Al Jazeera, Al Arabi, um, Channel 4, BBC. All of these organizations would go to Bambuza and take the footage for their nightly reports. But there was one problem with Bambuza, which we exposed in the veto was the footage that they uploaded was the entire footage. So they showed the before and the after ah. and the middle. And it's the middle bit that, of course, CNN and um, Would Al selectively edit. Yeah, use. But what they, obviously, either they weren't aware of or they just didn't see it or they didn't use it. But what they missed was the, the early bit where they're actually rehearsing um, the staging. Which staging? Well, the stage, so, so if, for example, you get a report and, and we cover this in the veto, you had, there was a major CNN documentary and I think mm-hmm. it was called Under Fire. And in this, you have Arwa Damon um, and a number of other CNN names um, mm-hmm. involved in reporting on this so-called attack on um, an oil refinery in Hot mm-hmm. or an oil pipeline. Mm-hmm. But effectively, what you see in the before and after footage is that it was staged. In other words, they released oil into the transport channels, the transport ducts, and people set fire to it. Then ah. CNN did their kind of running in front of the flaming oil and reporting that the Syrian regime in inverted commas had bombed the oil refinery, etc. Oh, no. Oh, no more oil. <laughs> no, no. This, and, and so the veto is basically an expose of, of all of these staged events. And there were many of them, by the way, that were being broadcast by CNN, mm-hmm. particularly by CNN, as authentic. And of course, they were caught out with, I don't know if you remember Danny Abdul Dayam. They were famously caught out with Danny Abdul Dayam. No, I don't remember. What is it? Um, this was in, oh my goodness, I think it was 2012. Mm-hmm. And what's the, oh God, what's his name? Anderson. Anderson Cooper? Gloria Vanderbilt. Yeah, and CNN did this exclusive report with Danny Abdul Dayem of, of a supposed Syrian Arab army attack on a district in Homs. But unfortunately for Anderson Cooper, the BAM user full footage was released and it was clearly seen that Danny Abdul Dayem was staging the whole event. They actually added 
shooting sounds and explosion sounds and so on. Oh, wait, wait, I have a quick question. Why didn't they just like bomb these things? Like, why did they have to stage it? That's a really good question because it basically wasn't happening as they were describing. You know, the, the like, okay, so if I were, a, I, I, I'm just curious, like if I were a terrorist, why would I want to stage this and why wouldn't I just take a, like whatever weapons the U.S. gives me and just make it explode? Um, because the whole idea is to, is to spin a narrative. Ah. So you, you can, yeah, sure you can. And they did this, by the way, that's also in the movie showing them, um, exploding buildings and then basically running away and pretending to be afraid and then bursting out laughing. Ah. So the idea was to frame the the government? Yeah. Yeah. The whole idea is, like I said, with the CNN report, so they were basically saying, oh, well, the Syrian government has just bombed uh, the Homs pipeline, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Whereas in reality, they'd set fire to it and then filmed it. Oh, um, so it's actually, okay, okay, I see. It's like literally the, okay. It's literally staging, exactly as the White Helmets have done with the chemical attack. Yeah, they yeah. were doing in a far less sophisticated way. <laughs> Right, because let's remember at this point they all assumed it would be over really quickly. Why did they do that? Why, like, why, why, why did they think it would be over really quickly? Well, because when you consider the most powerful nations in the earth mm-hmm. had decided that they were going to effect a regime change in Syria, mm-hmm. and they had been successful mm-hmm. in Libya, they had been successful in effectively Iraq, Iraq, yeah. Um, they had been successful generally, globally, mm-hmm. right? So basically, we have to remember that Syria was fighting on multiple fronts, and it was not only fighting on multiple fronts. It was fighting against um, professional soldiers, you know. These weren't um, ragtag rebels, mm-hmm. as they're described in Western media. These were professional mercenaries, whether they were al-Qaeda, whether they were ISIS, Al-Sham, any of the splinter groups of, of these extremist terrorist groups. Al-Qaeda originated in, in Iraq, as mm-hmm. did ISIS, really. I tend to have the view, you know, and both Eva and I have spent extensive time in Syria. I've been living here now for almost two years. The branding that is given to these groups is misleading because actually the ideology is pretty much the same. I They're so Salafis, right? Yeah. And I tend to see it as mafia operations. So in other words, if Al-Qaeda and ISIS are operating in the same area, they don't clash. They will only clash over revenue, resources, territory, and power, mm-hmm. right? But they don't clash ideologically. Mm-hmm. And if it suits them, they will join forces in, in a battle against the Syrian Arab army or any of the allies of the Syrian Arab army. So, you know, I tend to steer away from the branding because, as we know, in Idlib, for example, Al-Qaeda or Nusra Front, as it is in Syria, has been effectively rebranded quite a few times now. It's Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. Yeah, it's uh, kind of funny. Um, when we were yeah. doing the episode with Rania about the road Java, we actually played a video where <laughs> this U.S. general says that we branded PYPG yeah. as SDF. <laughs> Well, and also we have to remember that one of the reasons that America had an issue with Syria was, and that's one of the reasons they put sanctions on Syria in the early 2000s, was because uh, they considered that Syria was harboring a terrorist organization, the PKK, 
Yeah, well, well, what but the PKK is-, is the majority of the, the Syrian Democratic Forces or the YPG, whatever brand you, you want to give them. Well, the really weird thing from our previous episode we figured out mm. is that after O'Challan went to prison, they changed their enemies. Everything is like such a, it's like so mm. weird and none of it makes sense. So, um, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the Kurdish separatists have a history of kind of, um, we have an episode. Let's say betraying their principles in order to achieve their um, territorial gains. And that, that's pretty much what they've done in Syria. You know, they are a minority. They're a minority even among the Kurdish communities in Syria. The, that what I'm, the Kurdish separatist factions are a minority within the Kurdish communities in Syria. And they are definitely a, a huge minority or a small minority, I should say in the areas that they are effectively controlling now because they've been power multiplied um, by the U.S. and effectively Israel. by Israel, of course, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get back to the um, propaganda war. <laughs> so they're trying to manufacture, I guess, an idea that these are pro-democracy, whatever they want, rebels <laughs> against this big, bad Syrian army. Well, at the same time, they're being supplied by U.S. every, you know, the whole gang, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I am quite sure that the protesters in the U.K. at the moment or in France are going to find a tow missile under their bed at some point. You know, <laughs> it's like... Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I, I've always said, like, uh, since, like, um, imagine if, like, the Black Lives Matter protest suddenly became a civil uh, war. You'd be really yeah. weirded out by it and it wouldn't make sense. And... Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and it's more likely to happen in the U.S. because, you know, more people have guns in the U.S. There is more controls on that in, in the U.K. and Europe. But, you know, really in Syria, the arms were coming in long before um, 2011. The tunnels were being dug long before 2011 in preparation. And, of course, um, in 2013, Roland Dumas, um, who was the former French foreign minister, actually admitted publicly that in 2009, I assume British intelligence had contacted him and said, look, you know, we are planning to basically finance an insurgence in Syria to overthrow the regime. So, you know, and then, of course, you have um, the CIA operation Timber Sycamore, which was the arming and equipping the train and equip program that came in under Obama and the mysterious diversion of arms to groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Also remembering that ISIS was effectively um, initially uh, in the middle of the Badia Desert in in the um, north-east sector of Syria. So how were these Toyota trucks and sophisticated arms coming into Syria and into the hands of ISIS? And now, of course, we have a situation where the U.S. is not only occupying the Northeast, it, it has its illegal military base at Al-Tana. Um, it controls the Rukban refugee camps, so both of those camps are on the Jordanian borders. And there they are effectively recruiting and training and arming groups such as ISIS and mm-hmm. sending them on operations into to central Syria, back into Palmyra, into Homs, and of course Homs, is still a major hydrocarbon resource area that the U.S. lost control of when when they lost Homs, and mm-hmm. you know, that, that's why the battles for Homs, of course, were the preliminary battles and some of the most important and some of the you know the, really the, 
the US was the most pissed off when it lost Homs. And of course, when we go back to the to the propaganda, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of jumping around. No, no, no. Uh, we have a really good um, producer, so we'll fix everything. <laughs> Don't worry at all. Um, because it's also interconnected, you know, and, and the propaganda war, as I say, early on started to fall apart. And the media, I think, this is my speculation, the media realized that it had no plausible deniability. It was effectively running propaganda for regime change. At that point in 2013, they brought in, for example, the White Helmets, which were incubated in Turkey and Jordan. They were midwived by a former British military intelligence operator, James Lemazurier, mm -hmm. uh, who died in Istanbul in November 2019, mm -hmm. um, and who had been involved in a number of NATO interventions, most probably most prominently in Kosovo, in Pristina, okay. um, during the NATO interventions in the late 90s, of course. And at that point, Le Missourier, and, and this is an important point to make, at that point, Le Missourier had been involved in the transformation of the Kosovo Liberation Army, which was effectively Al-Qaeda and Albanian warlords, yeah, the KLA, into the Kosovo security forces, right? And at that time... The KLA um, was running cross-border organ trafficking and uh, child trafficking operations. And drugs too, right? Um, of majority Serbs, yeah, sure. But the, the most important is the organ trafficking because, of course, then Le Missourier was responsible for the founding of the White Helmets, as I said, in Turkey and in Jordan. Ah. And then the White Helmets themselves were embedded with the armed groups dominated by Al-Qaeda and groups like Jaish al-Islam, the Army of Islam, which uh, was the predominant group in Duma, which, of mm -hmm. course, was the scene of the staged chemical weapons attack in April 2018. Now, here we have, this is an interesting segue, but if we're talking about propaganda, it's a very important one. Mm -hmm. um, recent UK Foreign Office document leaks showed the extent to which the British government, through its intelligence agencies and through its outreach agencies, like Analysis Research and Knowledge, ARC Group, which James Lemessurier worked for before he, sorry, when he established White Helmets. Mm -hmm. He then left them and founded Mayday Rescue, which then became the intermediary for the British government and the White Helmets. In other words, it, it received the funding as a primary contractor or implementer, mm -hmm. as they call them, for the British Foreign Office. And it siphoned that money to the White Helmets. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, James Le Missourier's third wife, before mm -hmm. she became his third wife, mm -hmm. Emma Winberg, had established an organization called Incastrat um, with another former British military operator. Mm -hmm. Now, Incastrat, as part of this UK Foreign Office drive to provide PR and media, and we're talking multi-million mm -hmm. pound campaigns to promote and whitewash mm -hmm. and present the armed groups, including Al-Qaeda and dominated mm -hmm. by Al-Qaeda, as moderate democratic rebels. <laughs> yeah. This was a massive black op against Syria, funded and financed 
by the British government. Mm -hmm. um, and Emma Winberg, who later became the wife of James Lemazurier and joined him in the management of Mayday Rescue that was providing funds to the White Helmet, she headed up Incostrat. Incostrat was tasked with the PR for Jaish al-Islam, mm -hmm. the group that was occupying Duma when the chemical weapons attack took place. Mm -hmm. In 2013, just to give you an idea of how insidious this entire propaganda war is, um, Jaish al-Islam were responsible for the invasion of an area called Adra, an industrial um, and civilian area to the north of Damascus. Here, they effectively ethnically cleanse majority Alawite Muslim communities. Mm -hmm. They um, burned civilians alive in bread furnaces. They executed, beheaded them, tortured them mm -hmm. publicly. Thousands of them they took to Duma and held in captivity for almost six years in what they called the Tauber jail. And mm -hmm. in the Tauber jail, they were kept in solitary confinement. They were tortured. They were used effectively as lab rats. They were tested for drugs. I mean, Jesus they used Christ. drugs on them. They used, this is all according to testimony that I received from former survivors of the prison, by the way. They were allegedly used as actors in the stage scenes, again, to criminalize the Syrian government. So, for example, Jaish al-Islam would stage an attack. Mm -hmm. um, the prisoners were dragged out and used as victims of the attack, and then they were put back in the prison. Many of them were killed, and then their bodies were used in the staging. And if you've seen any of the White Helmet videos, of course, you always see them entering a building. There's always a body, there's always a child that they rescue and run towards camera. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, what these prisoners told me was that, yeah, you know, a lot of these attacks were staged effectively. And they were actually the ones that were digging out um, the bodies from the real attacks. <laughs> wow. So, this is, so, so basically, James LeMessurier was responsible for the creation of the White Helmets that then went on to stage much or produce much of the propaganda to demonize the Syrian government. Mm -hmm. His future wife was responsible for the PR, the whitewashing of a group like Jaish al-Islam mm -hmm. that was effectively carrying out heinous atrocities against Syrian civilians and committing mm -hmm. war crimes on an almost daily basis. Mm -hmm. So this gives you an idea of the depth of depravity of this information war that has been produced to effectively sell the idea of military intervention in Syria and to demonize the Syrian presidency, the government. And when we talk about the Syrian government, you know, I think also a lot of people don't understand this. They tend to think of the government as this kind of insular institution. In mm -hmm. Syria, the government includes civil society. It includes media. It includes every sector of Syrian society. A huge number of Syrians are employed by the government. Oh, right. that's a very common propaganda technique yeah. where if you take yeah, a librarian exactly. who's, let's say it's a librarian who's employed in a public library and mm. say Al-Qaeda, no, 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 moderate pro-democracy mm. rebels attack yeah. government thug or whatever, but yeah, it's actually like a librarian. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, uh, Khaled al-Assad, who was the curator of the Palmyra Museum, was a government employee, mm -hmm. right? And, and you know, he was... Um, Beheaded, right? And murdered, yeah. The um, so, museum, right? Yeah. So, you know, th that's an important point to make. The government is, is it's not some kind of, uh, how can I describe it? It's, it's not some kind of Assad 
centric institution. No, no, it encompasses everything Mm -hmm. inside Syria, all of the Syrian NGOs, the civil society, every organization Mm -hmm. that is working to restabilize this country Mm -hmm. would consider itself at least affiliated to or a part of the government Mm -hmm. apparatus, let's say. And yeah, you're right. You know, even now in Dada, the, the armed groups that remained as part of the Amnesty and Reconciliation Agreement in southern Syria, and now that's coming to a sort of a boiling point in Dada city, but Dada al-Balad. Because even since the negotiation of amnesty, they've still been carrying out isolated assassinations of who they consider to be government employees. And that can be doctors, they can be dentists, they can be nurses, they can be teachers. It doesn't matter. If they're perceived as loyal to the Syrian government, they're an enemy of the U.S. backed. Um, that, they sound like lesson. the Nicaraguan. They sound exactly like the yeah. Nicaraguan Contras, where they. Yeah, okay. yeah they are Contras. They, they are um, Wahhabi Contras. That's okay. exactly right. Yeah, um, that's the perfect terminology. And so, yeah, it's like we never hear about none of those. Like, you don't get the full context of anything. No, because, and and the thing is that it's either portrayed as, yeah, but it's complicated. (laughs) Well, no, it's not really. (laughs) It's really not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you get into the detail, sure, it's complicated because it's been such a vast, intricate operation that Mm -hmm. has effectively failed. For me, the turning point was Mm -hmm. the liberation of Aleppo in December 2016 because Mm -hmm. for five years, the media had not only the media, um, UN agencies, Mm -hmm. NGOs, Mm -hmm. um, government agencies had got away Mm -hmm. with selling the idea that civilians were being besieged and starved and um, deprived by the Syrian government. Mm -hmm. Whereas, in fact, I mean, Eva and myself were, I think, two of the few Western journalists that were on the ground, certainly during the last six months of operations to liberate Eastern Aleppo, it was the complete opposite. And of course, when the liberation came and civilians came out and their testimony started to turn Western media narratives upside down, I think it was, and because people like myself and Eva and Shamin Nawani and a number of other, Peter Oborn, a number of other really honest journalists had been reporting the truth, but had been completely maligned and, and demonized for it. Suddenly, we were kind of vindicated, you know, mm-hmm. just as we've really been vindicated over the staging of the chemical weapons attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so for me, Aleppo was the turning point in public consensus. Up until that point, I think the public largely was still being deceived. But with that came the fact that, gosh, you know, they were telling the truth. Well, what mm-hmm. else were they telling the truth about? And what else were the media lying to us about? Mm-hmm. You know, And the fact that this war has then gone on for another, what was that? That's five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, incredible, really. Um, you know, and now with the, the scandal over the APCW doctoring reports to retrospectively justify U.S., French, and U.K. unlawful aggression against Syria, and as much as they can try to cover that up, of course, it's, you know, it's virtually impossible in public consensus. 
you know, I don't expect mainstream media, I don't expect government agencies to ever admit what they've done or to ever give mm-hmm. any credit to those that are exposing them. Of course, they're not going to. I mean, I, I'll give you a very interesting example. In around, I think it was 2017, and it was after the Rashidin massacre in Aleppo, mm-hmm. where um, refugees from Shia villages, Shia Muslim mm-hmm. villages, and by the way, I'm only making this differentiation because it's important to the narrative. Syrians mm-hmm. actually consider themselves Syrian first and their religion second. Mm-hmm. So most Syrians before the war didn't even know what religion their neighbor was. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's how secular this country was and will mm-hmm. be again, you know, because that's what they're fighting for. But basically in Rashidin, which is to the south of the city of Aleppo, they were receiving refugees from two Shia Muslim villages that had mm-hmm. been besieged and attacked by Nusra Front and affiliates for, mm-hmm. for years. And these refugees arrived in Rashidin, which then was under the control of Nusra Front, Al-Qaeda, and Ar al sham um, mm-hmm. a group that also has committed atrocities in Syria and has mm-hmm. fought alongside Al-Qaeda and the White Helmets. And these civilians were abused by these armed groups um, while they were waiting to be released into Aleppo to meet with families and basically to receive hospital treatment and food, etc. And they came under a suicide attack, a truck. They, they basically lured the children out of the buses, huge bags of crisps, chips, and then drove a suicide car into the midst of Oh, my God. More than um, 100. And at this stage, um, the White Helmets and the armed groups were involved in the piling up of dead and injured children and the driving of them towards the Turkish border, which then raised suspicions on my part that they were part of um, the organ trafficking operation. And I had also, prior to that, received testimony from civilians in eastern Aleppo that the White Helmets were involved in organ trafficking, trading operations. Mm-hmm. I later also received testimony from eastern Ghouta when that was liberated, that the White Helmets were involved in organ trade. And that's mm-hmm. where I made the connection with Jones and Missourier and the KLA and organ trafficking. And then the creation of the White Helmets, which was effectively... Again, the transformation of what are effectively terrorist group members into a sort of humanitarian organization, right, Mm -hmm. which would then produce the propaganda to protect the armed groups and to present them as rebels and Democrats, etc. And at that point, um, I actually was given an audience in the UN with the then, um, well, I I will just say because it was an off-the-record meeting, it was a relatively high up member of the commission on Syria. Mm -hmm. And I basically gave them all the evidence that I had from the Rashidin bombing, which included video footage and Mm -hmm. uh, photographs of the children being stolen, basically. Mm -hmm. And 50 of those children are still missing, by the way. Wow. Um, And they effectively said to me, well, you know, you, you do understand that the White Helmets are such a political instrument. You are never going to get their funders, their backers, their sponsors to admit that this group is conducting criminal activity anywhere in Syria. 
Mm-hmm. And so at that point, the only way we could deal with this is actually Maxime Grigoriev, who heads up the Organization for the Study of Democracy uh, in Russia, mm-hmm. um, got involved in the investigation and came and carried out a, a, a very in-depth investigation into the White Helmet's involvement in crimes such as organ trafficking, child abduction, etc. And presented it in a UN panel in December 2018, which I mm-hmm. took part but, but the important point here is that we as independent journalists, activists, whatever you want to call us, we're never going to, our job actually is to make mainstream media irrelevant. Exactly. You know, we are never going to punch a hole into mainstream media. We're never going to punch a hole into government agencies. We're never going to punch a hole into the governments that are actually conducting these crimes against entire sovereign nations. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is change public consensus. And by changing public consensus, we can bring the pressure of public opposition to these interventionist wars to bear upon successive governments you know i don't even call them governments anymore it's not republican or democrat or conservative or labor (laughs) they are all war parties they are all part of the war machine they are all on the same path they are on the same they have the same roadmap right And, and they might approach it in a slightly different way they might have a slightly different policy but effectively they're heading for the same destination Exactly. It's like, does it matter if you take a Mercedes or a Porsche to your destination? Okay, to fix Wikipedia by getting all the imperialist trash history off it, we'll need an army of AI bots trained from historically Substack, which means we need more subscribers. So go to historically.substack.com today and subscribe. Also, check out our YouTube channel for Lit with Lenin on Mondays at 12 p.m. Eastern. And have a fireside chat on Sundays at 12.30 on our call-in show. It is what is to be done. Really, I think generally now, as the public that must oppose these so-called humanitarian wars, we have to ditch these left-right paradigms. You know, mm-hmm. it's them. It's, it's them versus us. Um, and the hybrid wars that they've been waging against countries like Syria, like Venezuela, like mm-hmm. Yemen, like Libya and Iraq, they are now currently waging against domestic population. And it is really now becoming more and more obvious to me that it is a them and us. And it's no longer left and right. And all of these sort of that I see regularly on Twitter, this this infighting between Democrat and Republican or left It feels right. like little or children playing on right. playgrounds. It's like, I don't want to yeah, know you little know, things. It's, it's kind of bigger than that now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, we need to recognize the threat is against all of us. It's not against mm-hmm. whether you're Democrat or Republican. You know, if you vote Republican, you're not going to get saved from the fate of the Democrats, that kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And really, Syria, for me, and, and this is where I, I, I'm emotionally invested here, is Syria, for me, has been fighting a war for all of us. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. You know, terrorism is being contained inside Syria. Without Syria and without Syria fighting this war, that terrorism would be at our shores, right? Yeah. 
you know, it's not going to get held up in Turkey. Turkey would release it into Europe. <laughs> Eventually, it would make its way back into the US and, mm -hmm. and to the countries that have spawned this terrorism, like Chechnya, like China, you know, and maybe at another point we can get onto the, the whole Uyghur narrative. Oh, yeah. There were 10,000. Well, there's more. There's probably around 25,000 now fighting in Idlib. So, mm -hmm. you know, for, for certainly for, for Russia with the mm -hmm. Chechens, for China with the Uyghurs, for Iran even, mm -hmm. um, that extremist wave is being contained inside Syria. And that is also, to a large mm -hmm. extent, why these allies have come in and fought um, so massively alongside Syria, because they know <laughs> if they don't contain it within Syria, it's at their borders, mm -hmm. right? And that, of course, is, is the long-term plan of the U.S. If we go back to the seven countries that Wesley Clark said would be um, taken down by successive U.S. regimes. And, of mm -hmm. course, Syria was among them. We're also seeing Lebanon now under serious hybrid war attack as the economy has been sent into pre-fall. Um, the Beirut port explosion decimated the economy and decimated the entire Beirut community, mm -hmm. um, you know, they are almost in a worse situation than Syria right now. But of course, effectively what that means is that Syria, whereas Lebanon before was an escape route for them, it was mm -hmm. a friendly nation on their borders where they could, to an extent, bank their money, they could mm -hmm. uh, travel from Beirut globally, etc. That has now been shut down on them. So effectively now Syria is pretty much blockaded. Mm -hmm. And sanctioned, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's a very familiar pattern, and it's it's a pattern of sadistic oppression that mm -hmm. the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. deploys against any sovereign nation that dares to resist its neo-colonialist project. Last year, we talked about the Lebanon um, sanctions, mm -hmm. and in our interview, we've talked, we've interviewed people uh from belarus and russia uh, the magnitsky act is like completely uh, i act the bill browder like my uh, podcast did, back then didn't even have that many people but he sent me a season desist because i interviewed the man who made beyond like the truth oh, about the magnitsky. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah and so yeah. i'm like oh yeah so there's yeah it is a warfare on the people is the thing the sanctions I, I, there's no other word for it Yeah, and I mean, the Caesar report, which, of course, um, is uh, the pretext for the Caesar sanctions, which were brought in by Trump. Um, my perception of the Trump administration is that it was used as an economic battering ram and, and to occupy resources, to burn um, resources, of course. Mm -hmm. Under Trump, uh, much of the wheat and barley crops were burned uh, deliberately. He was using incendiary bombs and supplying incendiary bombs to the terrorist groups, uh, which are now using them, by the way, in northern Hama, bordering Idlib. They're burning, mm -hmm. again, the, the crops in northern Hama to, to reduce, well, basically to produce food insecurity. And, of course, food insecurity is another one of, of the what is like, so, so what's their purpose for burning this? Well, basically, because Syria is blockaded, it can no longer import because ah. under the Caesar sanctions, of course, if you provide any kind of assistance to Syria, including oil or, or um, wheat or barley or mm -hmm. fuel or any, anything, water, mm -hmm. 
right? You you can come under sanction. Ah, right. Yes. So so effectively, Syria is completely blockaded. So it's reliant entirely upon its own resources. So Trump mm-hmm. started um, the policy of torching wheat and barley crops. The terrorists have occupied the most um, agriculturally abundant areas inside Syria, including cotton, olive groves, pistachios, wheat and barley, because, of course, that's in the, the bread basket is in the northeast. So both oil and wheat and barley and mm-hmm. the various U.S. proxies, which include ISIS, but also the Kurdish separatists, mm-hmm. are stealing the wheat and barley and trading it. They're stealing the oil. Ah. Um, Al-Qaeda have an actual monopoly on oil processing under their oil company, which is called Watad, W-A-T-A-D. Mm-hmm. They have a monopoly on oil processing, which they then trade in Turkey. The terrorist groups have dismantled entire electrical power stations, for example, Zezun, in on the borders of Idlib again, which used to provide electricity to all of uh, Idlib and northern Hamar and even Latakia. Mm-hmm. They destroyed it. They demolished um, the, whatever you call it, the, the conductive tower. Mm-hmm. Um, and they basically dismantled the entire power grid, um, everything and took it to Turkey and melted it down and traded it. And, of course, the early invasion of Aleppo by Turkish-backed mm-hmm. wheat brigades, that's also what they did there. They, they basically stole the multi-million industrial sectors in Aleppo mm-hmm. and took them to Turkey, re-established them, or again melted them down and traded them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this has been a war on multiple fronts. This has been a hybrid war of an unprecedented scale. And the U.S. has been very open about this. I mean, Trump has been very clear that, you know, they are there to steal the oil. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Syria study group made it very clear that they were there to occupy the oil resource area and to steal the agricultural resources. Mm-hmm. And all of this, of course, is to bring pressure to bear upon the Syrian people so that it, this is their theory. They will rise up against the Syrian government because the Syrian government can no longer provide for them. Literally, the uh, theory they used against the Nicaraguan country, uh, yeah, Nicaraguan exactly. Sandinistas. Yeah, um, you know, and and this is their blueprint, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, of course, it's failed. I mean, in May 2021, the Syrian people, in my opinion, came out on the streets not only to re-elect President Assad, but to send a message to the West, and they came out in their millions. Mm-hmm. Um, and they basically said, you are irrelevant. It doesn't matter what you do. You know, we, we are living literally, I mean, right now today we've had two hours of electricity and it's 48 degrees outside. My God, which means it's Celsius and I will convert it for Fahrenheit later. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not good on the whole Fahrenheit. No, don't worry. Uh, okay. I'll add it in later. <laughs> Um, you know, it's August heat, it's August temperatures here, and we literally had two hours of electricity. You know, people are struggling, they're really struggling. But still they came out on the streets and they said, no, because it doesn't matter what you do to us, we would rather resist than subjugate ourselves to your neocolonialist yeah. intention for our country. If you've read um, my Iraq article, it will always be yeah. even worse. Like the, uh, yeah. Saddam Hussein was a horrible person, but the man who tore down his strat- 
statues saying that he wishes he could have Saddam Hussein back. Mm. And like Assad, exactly. and Assad had um, like guessed the Kurt or whatever else Saddam Hussein did. You know what oh, I mean? Exactly. You know, no. And actually, if you go back to, I think it was Shamin. Yeah, it was Shamin Nawani that wrote a brilliant article. I think in 2016, where she she basically said, well, you know, all of these negotiations in Geneva are just going to lead us back to the reforms that President Assad was bringing in in 2011. Mm -hmm. And it's true. You know, he brought in a massive raft of reforms in response to um, the early protests. Yeah. What I always tell people is Obama never, if he did, he didn't meet with the Black Lives Matter protesters like for years. Assad, I remember, was like two weeks into it. He had already met with yeah. all the protesters. Exactly. You know, and, and even prior to 2011, and, and here's where I'll put a challenge to your listeners. If you can find me one bit of negative press about President Assad prior to 2011 or 2009, let's say, then please send it to me. But I seriously, you will not find it. <laughs> Right. Yeah, um, it's kind of funny. They went on a silence because have you ever listened to Barbara Walters interview with Assad? It was like such a cringe one. She was like, he was like, Mr. Assad, you've been. Oh, the first question she asked was, do you allow foreign journalists into your country? And he's like, you're in my oh, living yeah. room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, the whole no visa cannot. Oh, my God. He, no, no, she literally. And then he was like, oh. you're in my living room. <laughs> like, me. How did you get here? Uh, uh, we'll put the audio in. It's, uh, it, uh, but we'll also have to up. Well, one day we'll have to have a watch thing for the entire cringeworthy. It's like, I don't uh, even know what to say. It's like so stupid. Well, actually, I mean, that's another thing. If you actually watch all the President Assad interviews with a number of ridiculous Western journalists that mm-hmm. you know, try to catch him out unsuccessfully with every single sentence, yeah. whatever you think of him, he is intelligent and consistent. His message has been consistent. <laughs> And if you listen to Givok Galmasian, he, he basically says what every Syrian here will tell you. He stayed in the country. He stayed with his people. You know, he didn't abandon them. Because if he had abandoned them, it would have been a bloodbath. Mm-hmm. You know, there wouldn't be any Christians left yes. in Syria. There wouldn't be any Yazidis. There wouldn't be any Druze. There wouldn't be any Shia. <laughs> there would only be uh, and those that might comply with their dogma, you know, mm-hmm. rather than leave their homes, which is what happened, of course, in some of the occupied areas. But he stayed in the country. And as Kivok says, you know, at one point he was living 20 kilometers away from where ISIS were in camp. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he could have been murdered at any point, And yet he still went among his people without mm-hmm. bodyguards, without security. He drives his own car. Oh, yeah. He went to some I, random person's wedding a few days ago. Yeah, I know. I mean, and you know, I, I think Eva was here in Damascus, maybe when he just turned up at a church service at Christmas. You know, and I've heard stories that at night he quite often he quite often just takes a normal car and he just drives around Damascus. And I, I've know, seen videos of him have driving. A heart attack when he turns up at the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the checkpoint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, this is a guy who will just turn up at a. You know, they have subsidized um, government subsidized mm-hmm. shops here in Damascus. What, well, in fact, throughout Syria to mm-hmm. provide 
subsidized food for those that can't afford um, the prices, mm -hmm. the regular prices. Mm -hmm. And I've seen footage where he just wanders into one of these shops with his shirt sleeves rolled up, you know. Mm -hmm. um, look, of course there is opposition to the government mm -hmm. here, but I, I think one of the most moving quotes I ever republished was by a doctor in Aleppo, Nabil Antaki, who's a gastroenterologist and who has opposed the armed invasion of Aleppo from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. even though he would consider himself in opposition to the Assad presidency, right? Mm -hmm. But I remember he he said in an interview, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but mm -hmm. he said, look, we all want reform. Mm -hmm. We all want changes, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to kill my country to achieve it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that, that this is a very important message. Of course, there are people here, and, and it's ridiculous to say that people are not allowed to speak out against the government here. <laughs> Any taxi you take, they don't stop criticizing the government. You know, I mean, this is the thing. Everyone moans about the government here, just as in any other country, right? But when it comes down to it, and when their way of life and their entire culture and civilization was under threat, they stood in solidarity with the Syrian government. And as President Assad stood in solidarity with them, Right. And the Syrian Arab army is the Syrian people. You yeah. know, every family you speak to in Syria, they have a cousin, a brother, a father, a husband, a mother, a sister in the army. There is not one family that isn't affected by mm -hmm. this war um, in the sense that they have a, a loved one or a relative fighting in the army. You know, it's a conscript army. These are the Syrian people. The, the, the Syrian people are the army and the army is the Syrian people. And again, you know, this is badly misrepresented in Western media. The, the Syrian army is always portrayed as some kind of a sad militia. <laughs> yeah. You know, really couldn't be further from the truth. Oh, exactly. Like, um, and another thing is you, you see like Vice having these hot girls <laughs> in the Kurdish um, oh, army yeah. like fighting, but they never tell you that the Syrian Arab army has the same hot girls. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. I mean, not, I mean, not, not hot girls, but same girls who can be hot, very hot because Arab women are all very beautiful, but you don't see those puff pieces is what I was trying to say. No, exactly. And, and, you know, I mean, yeah, of course you have uh, women in the Syrian army and, and many of them have died. Many journalists, many Syrian journalists, the majority of them are women have died actually on the front lines or being terribly injured reporting from the front lines targeted by the terrorist groups because, again, journalists are perceived as loyalists, as, as government supporters, when in fact, in reality, they're doing their job and they're patriots. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think what is just really important is to understand the depth and extent of the information war that has been waged against Syria and is still being waged against Syria. I mean, we touched on the Caesar report and a journalist and a colleague, Rick Sterling, has done probably the most detailed takedown of the whole Caesar report and the fact that Human Rights Watch, sorry, Human Rights Watch even admitted that many of the bodies were actually uh, Syrian Arab army soldiers that had been tortured by the terrorist groups and, you know, left to die and then photographed. So the Caesar report, which was uh, commissioned by Qatar. <laughs> oh, God. You know, okay, again, they should not be talking about human rights violations, but that's another exactly. story. 
They have flames. Yeah, and, like and, Kapo, yeah, and, and Qatar also was the, the biggest financer of Al-Qaeda inside Syria, you know? So, and, and my argument is, you know, it, Assad is a war criminal according to who? According to the Never, court. Yeah, he, yeah, the court of media, right? Exactly. Like, like um, Tony Blair's a bigger war criminal. I, yeah. I mean, yeah, but exactly. he'll never get tried. No. And, you know, I would argue that, that there's now, of course, this um, seizure case, and I can't the life of remember what CIJA stands for. I'll check it out and send it to you. Um, but, you know, they're now claiming they have millions of documents in a secret vault detailing torture and political prisoners and so on and so forth. You know, prior to 2011, Syria actually had um, almost, I think, the smallest number of political prisoners. And Assad had released, uh, reports vary, but he'd released around 800. He'd given citizenship um, to, I can't remember the number of Kurds. Um, so even before 2011, he was progressive and reformist. And that's borne out by, for example, former British ambassador to Syria, Peter Ford, who was here 2003 to 2006. And he said, basically, you know, President Assad was on track to, to massive reforms, which, of course, were completely derailed by the 2011 war operations led by the U.S. coalition. Even despite that, when the protest started, he tried, as you say, to meet with protesters. He tried to meet the demands. And then, actually, when he met the demands and released some of the Islamist Muslim Brotherhood prisoners, of course, then it's being twisted in Western media. See, he released ISIS from prison. But he's, um, <laughs> and he is a, 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 a Shia, like ISIS. Um, it's kind of like it's calling a Jewish person a Nazi collaborator. Like, you yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's just insane. And I mean, now the majority of prisoners in Syria are Muslim Brotherhood or extremists, right? And, yeah. and if, if we're considering that in, let's go back to World War II, MI5 was summarily executing, often following kangaroo trials of suspected spies, right? Mm-hmm. Post 9-11, and uh, we should not even talk about what the yeah, British exactly. did in India, for example. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm sure that you could you could go on for decades. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like me in Syria in the Middle East, you know. But post, yeah, uh, yeah the British involvement in, in, oh, God, yeah, don't even get me on that with Kashmir. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, you know, and, and the bloodshed in the Middle East is totally down to, of course, the, the British and French carving up of the entire region, right? Yeah, I mean, if we look at the U.S. policy in Guantanamo, in Abu Ghraib, in Afghanistan, in Bagram. And everywhere else in the uh, world. Yeah, <laughs> and all the black sites that, that the CIA established yeah. worldwide. Um, and yes, I'm quite sure many of your listeners are going to say, yeah, but, you know, President Assad agreed to a black site inside Syria. Okay. But to a degree, that black site was focused only on ridding Syria of Al-Qaeda, right, which again was created by the U.S. Let's not forget this. You know, Clinton has admitted it. The DIA documents have exposed the fact that America was um, weaponizing the extremist factions against Syria. Right. This is it's it's not, you know, this is in the public domain. 
It's not um, some kind of clandestine conspiracy theory information that I'm giving you that Wikipedia would have you believe. Mm -hmm. It is, it's in the public domain. And the political or the so-called, what are now being portrayed as political prisoners inside Syria are majority Salafist, extremist, hardcore Al-Qaeda group members that are imprisoned in Syria. But let's not also forget the policy of amnesty and reconciliation. That if a Syrian has taken up arms and agrees to amnesty and reconciliation and to give in their arms when the area they occupy is liberated, they can be reintegrated into Syrian society. And they will not even be taken to court, by the way. The only time they will be taken to court is if a civilian brings a case against them for crimes committed during occupation, etc. Right? Yes. This is a very important point to make. So those prisoners that are described as political prisoners, for example, in Sadnaya prison, even former inmates, political opposition to the Assad presidency have said, you know, no, 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 they're not political prisoners. The majority of the prisoners in Sadnaya are Salafists. And Amnesty International anyway had to walk back its report on Sadnaya because they had to admit that it had been constructed by computer companies. <laughs> what? In the UK, yeah. I mean, they, you know, they, they had no inside knowledge of, of Sadnaya at all. The entire report on Sadnaya was produced literally by computer experts in the UK. <laughs> wow. Um, and was immediately debunked by former ambassador Peter Ford, who had actually visited Sadnaya prison. It was debunked by former inmates, as I said, who said that's ridiculous. It can't even house um, 5,000 prisoners, let alone the huge number that they claimed were in there. Um, and even these former inmates said, no, you know, these are hardcore extremists in Sadnaya, extremists that have carried out terrible crime against Syrian civilians, against um, ethnic minorities, etc. So it's very important to put context to these narratives because otherwise what happens is that effectively history is revised by the loudest voices and we know exactly in in the case of american interventionism in the majority of cases people remain deceived it's very Mm -hmm. rare that they have their eyes open vietnam was probably one example where you know yes the u.s was exposed in vietnam eventually eventually won the war against the U.S. there on on all fronts, really. And in Syria, I think Syria is the other example. I think public consensus now is really ranged against the media, against governments and against UN agencies, etc. There is still sometimes, you know, a little bit of, oh, I wonder if. But that's normal. You know, when, when you're being, when you're under such a barrage of what appears to be credible reports and witness Mm -hmm. testimony and so on. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like when I first started exposing the White Helmets in 2015. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I was just vilified because here's this group, you know, rescuing kids from Mm -hmm. under rubble and here's me kind of saying, "Mm, actually. (laughs) That's every day for me. Um, So I understand exactly. And I, I'm very, I, I get you like every single day, like yesterday, 
they were trying to say that the Myanmar activists, uh, uh, I'm like, no, um, look, they're committing genocide. <laughs> no, um, they're not a pro-democracy group. Like, so it's literally every day. So, and it comes with it. So thank you so much for coming. No, and please tell us how we can um, find you. You can find me on my Patreon, Vanessa Bede at Patreon. I'm still on there. They mm-hmm. haven't sent with me yet. Um, I'm on Subscribe Star. Um, my work appears at Unlimited Hangouts, uh, mm-hmm. Mint Press, 21st Century Wire, uh, RT, of course, mm-hmm. although mm-hmm. I'm definitely not a Russian agent. <laughs> oh, I am. <laughs> oh, yeah, I wish. I no, 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 that's exactly what I said. I, I'm just going to say, yeah. <laughs> you know, when, when they send me the money, I'll let you know. <laughs> exactly. I have a pay in my Patreon. There's like a president of Russia um, level. You can subscribe to our Patreon for like $5,000 a month. (laughs) Yeah. If only. Yeah. um, You know, as I'm sure, you know, our, our job is a pretty lonely one and not only it's not a very lucrative one. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of the day. And we would love to have you you back. uh, Keep us updated. Sure. And thanks so much for having me on. Take care. Of course. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectex. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.